This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. You are listening to the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 67. I interviewed Joseph of Save Our Wild Salmon. We're going to learn about salmonid and orca conservation in the Pacific Northwest and what you can do as listeners and donors to help his nonprofit bring down the dams and restore wild fish in the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his website, wildsalmon.com. Dot org for more information. This is your time to shine. Great. Right, Thanks, ready? Rob, for, for, yeah. for hosting this. Yeah. All right. So I met you. Well, do you want to introduce yourself first? Uh, let's, sure. Let's, let's introduce you. Okay. Should I do that? Go for it. Okay. Uh, my name is Joseph Bogart. I'm the executive director of the Saver Wild Salmon Coalition which is uh, uh, an alliance of uh, conservation groups, uh, commercial and recreational fishing groups, clean energy advocates, orca advocates, a lot of different constituencies working together, concentrated in the Pacific Northwest, but with, with, with support from around the country, working on restoration of what was once uh, one of our most uh, productive uh, salmon landscapes on the planet, the Colombian Snake River Basin. All right, and let's find out where are you today. I'm I'm based in Seattle. Okay, and remind me, we met in line at the Yeti booth years ago at ICAST in Vegas. Uh huh. Yeah, 
Man, that was a long it was, time ago. It was a long time ago, Rob. I still use that cup. That's my tea cup. That's what you <laughs> awesome. tea out of mostly. Yeah. All right. So you're in Seattle. Tell us about your background. Where did you grow up? Were you into fish and conservation or did that come later in life? No. Uh, I grew So I grew up in Southern California, just outside of Los Angeles. And, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best fit for me. Uh, as I was growing up, although I, I didn't quite realize that at the time because it's, it's hard to have that kind of perspective when you're young. But uh, I, I think my, my, my nickname amongst my friends was Johnny Appleseed, which was uh, some reference to the fact that I had uh, tendencies towards conservation and, and being outside and hiking and being in the mountains. Uh, um, and uh, when, I, when I finished high school, I headed to Northern California, went to college there, studied zoology and environmental studies, and then spent, you know, most of my 20s uh, 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 working and exploring the, 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 the West, uh, the Western United States, uh, which is a landscape I've really come to love. Um, and I sort of steadily uh, worked my way up into Oregon. And then uh, uh, into uh, Seattle, where I've been since 1991. And, uh, uh, you know, in college, I definitely had sort of orientation towards, you know, biology, zoology, uh, uh, conservation issues. Um, and that those sort of interests have only gotten stronger. And, and I've, you know, I've been working for the Saber Wild Salmon Coalition for uh, over 20 years. And the the first listings uh, under the Endangered Species Act of salmon uh, anywhere in the country were, were were Snake River sockeye uh, back in 1991, and when that occurred, um, uh, that set off uh, you know both uh, you know a, a red flag and alarms about where Pacific Northwest salmon were headed. Uh, and also, I think opportunity for uh, people to organize and 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 turn the tide and and begin to work on restoring uh, not just the sockeye but other salmon and steelhead populations in the basin that soon followed the sockeye onto the Endangered Species Act as threatened or endangered. Right. What is the mission statement of SOS? Should we just go SOS for abbreviation? I'm not calling for help. Sure. That's your sure. organization. <laughs> so our, our, uh, our acronym is, is SOS. And our mission statement is to protect and restore the uh, wild salmon and steelhead populations in the Columbia Snake River Basin uh, to healthy, self-sustaining, harvestable levels for the benefit of uh, natural systems, fish and wildlife, including orca, uh, and and human pot and, and human communities, tribal and non-tribal communities in the Pacific Northwest that that uh, you know highly value for for various reasons uh, salmon and steelhead populations. All right, so that's your mission statement. Um... One other question. I'm going to basically break down SOS and, and what they do and how they operate. For your mm -hmm. operating budget, is it donations, fundraising? Do you seek grants? And if you do, who do you seek them from? Uh huh. So, Save Our Wild Salmon um, 
you know, we have a we have a budget of about a, a quarter million dollars annually. So we're, you know, in the big scheme of things, a fairly small, uh, mean, lean organization. Uh, a lot of our strength and power and influence and impact comes from the fact that we are uh, this this large, diverse coalition of interests that are all working uh, in in a similar direction to address the problem salmon face in the Columbia snake system. Um, and SOS's role uh, is to um, uh, largely to help develop that strategy and then coordinate with our partners uh, so that their various skills, talents, um, uh, contacts, and so forth can, can be brought to bear uh, to, to benefit uh, these populations, our rivers, communities that rely on them. Um, so the, the the sources of our funding are 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 varied, um, you know, foundations, uh, large major donors, small grassroots donors. Uh, we also get uh, uh, a, a not insignificant amount of money from you know various businesses that recognize you know that agree with our mission, that recognize the value that salmon represent to the Columbia to the Pacific Northwest and nation. Um, whether it's cultural, economic, environmental, so forth. Uh, and so, um, you know, it, 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 the, the fundraising is a, is a primary responsibility of mine. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously uh, sort of important work. It's, it never ends. And, um, uh, and, you know, we are, you know, deeply appreciative of the support we get from, from you know sort of various supporters at whatever level they're able to 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 do so and what are your fundraising events like out here it's cocktail parties black ties you know thousand dollar plate we were just watching i was showing my daughter dumb and dumber and the whole owl scene was it was 500 a plate and they just stuffed the uh the guy's pocket with thousand dollars of money Uh, but that was colorado how how do you do it out in seattle (laughs) Well, you know, Microsoft to show up at all. It's it's a good it's a good question. Um, Our you know our operations um, are more based on I think individual contacts, um, you know, foundation grant applications, that sort of thing. We we do host a lot of events, um, but they're often done in concert with our partners, and and they're not. Those sorts of sort of high-end, um, you know, ex- expensive uh, events that 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 raise a bunch of money. That's just not been a strategy we've 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 deployed, um, for better or for worse. Um, again, we're a pretty small operation, and 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 you know, all of our you know sort of resources and and uh, activities are are we're pretty thoughtful about. Um, so it, it varies. We do a lot of online fundraising. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I meet with, with, with anyone who's interested in learning more about what we're doing and, 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 um, you know, sort of always, always ready and willing to ask them for their support and find out sort of how they want to get involved and, and support our activities. So we do periodically hold, um, you know, fundraiser event, fundraising events, but, but they're not, yeah, they're not a lot along the lines you just described, Rob. Um, we, we do a lot of our events are focused on, uh, education, uh, of, of the public, of elected officials, 
of media, of uh, opinion leaders and influencers, um, uh, and, uh, and and we do it you know largely around the Pacific Northwest in you know Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and if we're not leading events, then we're often uh, you know supporting our partners' events to to achieve the same sorts of outcomes. Who are some of the organizations you have alliances with? Other organizations, nonprofits. Sure. So SOS is a, a coalition with you know something over forty organizations, and uh, we probably have maybe maybe fifteen or eighteen that are particularly uh, engaged and active, and and they include you know groups like. Uh, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, Defenders of Wildlife, the Sierra Club, um, uh, Earth Justice, uh, big national groups, um, and, and we've also got you know state and regionally based organizations like the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association and the Coastal Trollers Association and uh, Pacific Coast uh, Federation of Fishermen's Associations, um, Idaho Rivers United. Um, Nimipu Protecting the Environment is a uh, uh, an organization that was created and is led by uh, Nez Perce tribal members uh, based in uh, you know southeast Washington and in, in Idaho, uh, traditional Nez Perce country um, uh, and homelands. So we work you know while the while the while tribal people are not. You know, uh, or tribes uh, are not members of our coalition, given their sovereign nations, it wouldn't be appropriate. We, we do work uh, frequently and closely with a lot of the uh, tribal people in the Pacific Northwest. So We've also got – go uh, I was just going to add one other sort of class of, of, of groups that we work with is sort of orca advocates. And, and that's an issue at some point we'd love to talk more about, but it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's emerged, uh, particularly in the last three, four years as the, the scientific information about the connection between southern resident orcas and Columbia Basin salmon has become much clearer. Uh, both salmon in the Columbia Basin are listed on ESA and southern resident killer whales are as well. And the killer whales rely on salmon for their Chinook salmon for their primary uh, 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 food source, and so there's this this strong nexus between the two critters, and we've got to figure out ways forward that are going to protect and restore both populations, which are really in different ways very iconic Pacific Northwest creatures, um, species, communities that uh, you know we would be much lesser uh, for it if, if, if we were allow either of them to disappear. Why are they specifically feeding on the Chinooks? Is it their size? Is it they're at the same location at the same time with migrations and spawning, mating? Yep. The, uh, so, so the orca, of course, um, spend their entire life in marine water, salt water. Uh, their range uh, takes them over the course of any given year from southern British Columbian coastal waters down as far as uh, northern California. And, and they've been around here for at least 
hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and there's a, there's a number of different unique orca populations in the, you know, off the coast of the United States and around the world. And the southern resident orcas uh, is one subpopulation. And, and, and over time, they have come to specialize on Chinook salmon. Uh, about 80% of their diet is, um, is based on, on Chinook salmon today. And, of course, that population, uh, as those populations have declined, that's had a obviously harmful effect on the mortality of this population and their, their ability to reproduce. Uh, I, I think that the orca probably target the Chinook. I mean, it's interesting, right? They'll, they'll, if, if they, there could be a single Chinook that is swimming amongst a school of sockeye salmon heading, you know, in coastal waters, headed back to rivers, and they will, you know, surgically move through that Chinook, I'm sorry, that sockeye school and pick out the one Chinook if they're able to get a hold of it. Um, so they're very specialized in that regard. And, and my best guess is they're, they like Chinook for the same reason that many people do. Um, they're large, they're fatty, they're, they're delicious. Um, um, the, you know, the fact that they are, I think, large and fatty uh, means that, you know, they're going to be able to derive more, you know, energy and, and resources, food from, you know, uh, one fish, you know, it's just there's sort of a, a, a unit of food per effort. Um, Chinook are going to be the best. Um, and, you know, if you think historically, the Columbia Basin, uh, you know, it's it was this once tremendously productive landscape uh, that, you know, it's an area about the size of France. Um it has, uh, you know, many different unique uh, salmon and steelhead populations and subpopulations utilized in different parts of the basin. And, you know, historically, you had, for example, the, the, the June hogs. And these were fall Chinook that would come back uh, in, the, in June to the mouth of the river and then uh, uh, left to their own devices would head up. Uh, all the way up to Columbia into what's now British Columbia. But these guys were sometimes six feet long, uh, 100 pounds. They were, they were monstrous Chinook uh, and highly valued and highly delicious. And you can imagine it wouldn't take more than one or two of those guys in a yeah. given day to, uh, to, to meet the nutritional needs of, of, of orca. Um, uh, those fish are gone now. The Grand Coulee and, and Chief Joseph Dams in the upper watershed of the Columbia Basin, uh, uh, for the moment, has permanently cut off that habitat, and, and those fish you know, disappeared several years afterwards. Um, so you know, today, the Chinook are still the biggest uh, salmon swimming these marine waters. They're not as big as they used to be. Uh, and of course, they're not as uh, abundant as they used to be, and that's 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 obviously been a big a big problem. Do you know that they were that size from f historic photographs? Is that fossil record? Is it uh, indigenous peoples' stories? Those fish were coming back even a hundred years ago, so there are photographs of those. I, I've got photographs on my computer of 
you know, fish that were basically as tall as the people that were holding them. Um, so they, you know, in his, you know, if you want to, so, so that's sort of relatively recently. And of course, I think a lot of people, especially folks of European descent have, I think, sort of environmental or, or sort of amnesia. Um, it just takes a generation or two before people forget what was here, what's been lost, um, and what, what we need to be holding on to. But having said that, if you if you look back further, um, you you did get um, much larger. There were there were actually if you go back in the fossil record in the Pacific Northwest, you know, uh, you know, you, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years. They, there were populations of saber-toothed salmon, which were even larger, and they had very large, you know. Teeth. I'm sure they were, you know, predatory fish then too. Uh, but but these guys were like, you know, ten feet long, and had teeth that were inches in length. Um, so you know, salmon in some form have been around this landscape for a very very long time. And 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 orca, you know, because the 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 fish was at one time so abundant and so large and so nutritious that you know it, 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 it in some sense from an evolutionary standpoint one can imagine how uh, you know some orca populations came to specialize just on those fish because they were you know they, they were they were around year round historically uh, and and uh, you know they were relatively easy to find that's obviously you know changed right all because of us uh, a, 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 yes, a lot of, a lot of, you know, I mean, you know, orca, they've been around for at least hundreds of thousands of years, salmon too. And we're now in this place, um, um, at the, you know, beginning of the 21st century where, uh, you know, salmon and steelhead and, and orca and, and obviously a whole, whole lot of other populations are, are teetering. Um, so it, it's clear that we've made some mistakes. I think you know we can talk about that a bit, and it's clear that we have to figure out new ways of uh, moving forward, new ways of living within our landscape, uh, in order to make sure that you know these important species and systems and populations uh, you know have a place in this landscape too. I, I, I would argue for their own sake, uh, but also you know it's important for people to realize the, the benefits that you know these. Uh, species bring to uh, people as well. If you want to look at it from that sort of purely selfish perspective, the food they 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 offer, the um, uh, the jobs they support, um, you know these 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 fish, particularly salmon and steelhead, are, are are very important culturally, economically, and ecologically in the Pacific Northwest. So let's say I just bump into somebody outside walking their dog and tell them I was doing the podcast with you and they're like, well, why should we, why should we save salmon? What if they either are not anglers or don't fish? What is the importance of bringing them back? I mean, for, mm-hmm. for most of these listeners, we understand it, but other people that are not connected to salmon and what they are and what they do and the economics they bring in, um, why is it important to save these species? Yeah. So a good question. I'll expand on my, my earlier comment a little bit. I'll just start with, um, well, I'll, uh, the, there's a cultural reason and, and, a, and a justice reason. Um, I'll start there. There's, there's others. Um, uh, I, I think it's important, first and foremost, to recognize the 
central importance that that I think for people of European descent is hard to appreciate how important and how central salmon are were historically and are today to uh, tribal communities in the Pacific Northwest. Many tribal uh, people and communities consider themselves salmon people. Their relationship um, was, you know, was 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 sort of indistinct, or their their presence was indistinguishable. It was relationship was incredibly tight. Um, their 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 worlds and livelihoods and in years cycles and circled around, uh, you know, what salmon were doing, where they were. Um, and that sort of thing. And, and, and I, I, in ways I can't try to properly describe and I, I would never, you know, sort of try to uh, speak for tribal people except to say that we, that I recognize that there's this uh, sort of fundamental role and importance that they play that's, that's more than economic. It's, you know, it's more than cultural. It's spiritual. And, and I think, as we were saying just a moment ago, the, impact that uh, um, that 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 people have had that's been imposed on this landscape over the last hundred years um, has been uh, you know particularly damaging to the uh, in, in sort of integrity and health of tribal communities and one of those impacts is 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 sort of the severe loss of salmon so that's one of the things I, I, I it's a, it's a, it's a justice issue. We have a responsibility here to um, strike a much better balance uh, in the Columbia Basin, in the Pacific Northwest, with regards to you know, the health of our rivers um, and uh, health of our salmon and, and how we operate. We'll, we'll get into it, I'm sure, in a little bit, but how we operate. Uh, uh, you know, the, the dams and reservoirs that have really transformed this uh, wild river system um, that was highly productive of fish and fish and wildlife into one that now uh, is is almost bereft of that uh, those resources, but but produces a lot of uh, hydroelectricity. Um, it, uh, uh, you know, there's a balance to be struck there. We we haven't done it. Um, and, and of course, those same benefits in many respects, the cultural ones, the economic ones, you know, in addition to uh, the sort of cultural and spiritual uh, importance of salmon to, to tribal people, it's a food, it's a first food um, uh, that you know, obviously nourishes their bodies. That, that, that's true of non-tribal folks, too. Um, and, uh, um, you know, so that's, that's an important contribution that people, I think a lot of people, whether they're from the Pacific Northwest or elsewhere, appreciate. Oh, yeah, salmon is a really good food. We would, uh, it would be a terrible loss to, to lose it. Um, so, so there's the, 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 the tribal justice issue I'll just sort of set aside. Um, the economics, there, there are tens of thousands of jobs historically and even today. There's still many, many jobs around the Pacific Northwest and across the West Coast um, that are that exist because salmon exist um, and uh, on those populations that are healthy enough to be to be uh, fished on, whether it's commercial fishing um, or recreational fishing. And I'll take those both in turn. But I want to point out that that there are 
recreational fishermen and commercial fishermen in rural communities across the West Coast, inland up into, you know, eastern Washington, uh, central Idaho, uh, eastern Oregon. It's a, uh, you know, the, the salmon uh, culture and landscape is, is, is been vast over time. And, and of course, it, it has shrunk. Um, and that's something that, of course, SOS is, is trying to stop and, and reverse. We're trying to expand salmon and, and, and restore the, their health and, and, uh, and productivity around their historic habitats. But, um, uh, you know, they, per- they support a tremendous amount of jobs. And especially, for example, on the, the west coast of Washington, um, you know, it's, it's far from the, uh, you know, technology corridor of, you know, uh, Microsoft and Google and Seattle and, and Portland, um, you know, it's that those those economies out there and communities are struggling. Historically, they relied on, uh, you know, in the last hundred years on, on, on timber and on salmon fishing. And, um, you know, we have an opportunity by restoring salmon in the basin to restoring some jobs and opportunity and health and and reasons to visit tourism, uh, those coastal communities, which otherwise I think are having a really hard time making it. And as a result are, um, you know, as the economic opportunities uh, uh, decline, you often see a increase in a lot of uh, social challenges, um, domestic abuse, uh, you know, op- opioid or other drug abuse, um, poverty, uh, uh, poor health, urban mortality, all those sorts of things. And so, you know, I think there's a really strong argument uh, today, you know, especially if you care about what's going on in rural communities, to uh, take steps to, to bring back healthy fishable populations of salmon to, to help create some uh, some renewed opportunities in communities that, that that have lost them. So that's that's another one. And then I, I want to talk a little bit about the the, the ecological um, uh, sort of quality of life uh, slash identity. Uh, um, you know, Paci- the Pacific Northwest has been a salmon landscape since you know people first arrived here in, in long before. And it's it's one of those things that, you know, I think regardless of where you live, we all have a sense of what makes a particular area, our home city or state or region unique. Uh, and, and, and those things are they have value and are, 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 are worth protecting. And in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, what's going to be in the top of virtually everyone's list uh, when you ask them? Uh, is what defines the Northwest. What is the Northwest identity? It's healthy rivers. It's, uh, you know, uh, sprawling natural landscapes and it's, you know, salmon, uh, ecology and culture and economy and food. And, and, and so I think if people can appreciate, you know, and recognize the values of their own region, they can certainly you know, appreciate that, 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 that the Pacific Northwest sort of also has this identity. And frankly, unless we do things differently, um, you know, that identity and that sort of signature quality of our region is, is, is at risk of disappearing. Right. Um, 
And with that environment, so in school you're taught the water cycle and the air cycle and carbon <coughs> dioxide. Would you say there's a salmon cycle that defines the whole transfer of nutrients from Absolutely. It's ocean question. brings all the nutrients? You take the nutrients from the ocean that are in the fish that then die and then feed everything, and then everything takes those nutrients out, poops them, biodegrades, brings the life back, which then feeds the baby salmon. And it right. just goes on and on. So so let me break that down a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, for for your listeners, um, salmon are this is this sort of fascinating creature that can move between salt water and fresh water and then back again. Um, so the adults uh, grow large in the ocean on ocean uh, you know the o- ocean ecosystem, and then they return to a relatively um, uh, low nutrient, uh, uh, you know, freshwater ecosystem. Uh, once they hit freshwater, they don't really eat that much in large part because there's not much to eat. So they've adapted to sort of put on a lot of fat and 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 be able to get upstream and go back, basically to the to the very gravels, the very stretch of river where they themselves were were born by their parents or or, or spawn as eggs. Um, so they have this phenomenal ability to track, um, you know, and, and, and complete this amazing circle. They, salmon, will then uh, uh, build build nests in the river, in the gravels. There's a little crackling coming oh, through. Sorry. Lay eggs and um, uh, and then die and, and deliver – uh, as you suggested, these what, what what the scientists call marine derived nutrients uh, into this ecosystem that that without them would would often have very little nu- nutrients in it. So if you think about, let's say in a given year, a hundred years ago, we had 16 million fish returning to the the Columbia Snake River system uh, and a large area, admittedly. But let's say those fish on average weighed 20 pounds. Uh, you can do the math and figure out there are these bags of fertilizer that are coming from the ocean and heading into this, this, this freshwater system and delivering huge amounts of, uh, of, of nutrients and food and energy to that system and firing up this uh, what was and has been historically really, really rich, diverse ecosystem. That supported, you know, huge populations of bears, wolves, coyotes, eagles, and a whole lot of other critters, uh, whether they were catching the salmon live and eating them or whether they were, uh, you know, taking advantage of spawned out salmon that were then you know, sort of degrading and, and, and returning to the river system. Uh, insects, um, uh, larvae mammals, uh, reptiles, all sorts of animals. There's a, one study I, re, I recall a couple of years ago documented 135 different critters that benefit from the presence of salmon and steelhead. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, in, 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 you know, that historically, I think many forest ecologists will acknowledge the role that salmon played in building the tremendously rich historic forests, ancient forests of the Pacific Northwest by these regular annual infusions of marine-derived nutrients that year in, year out, 
delivered all this, you know, the building blocks of trees and forest ecosystems. Um, so that's a contribution that they've made historically that, of course, today with the steep reductions in wild populations and the replacement of some of those wild populations by hatchery fish. Well, hatchery fish are sort of a whole other topic, but they one thing they, they, they don't do is sort of deliver those nutrients to the ecosystem the same way wild fish do. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, that's a really important role they've played. And again, it's one that, that we're, we're struggling to, 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 to return and restore. How long has it taken? Are there, can you see the visual effects of the nutrient flow being cut off? I mean, how has the uh, landscape changed without millions of me, fish coming back? What, what I'm going to, what I'm going to, do is reverse that question, okay? Uh, and 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 ask and answer and sort of raise the, the the issue or the question or the success story of the Elwha uh, River on the, the uh, Olympic Peninsula in eastern in western Washington. Um, so, uh, uh, I bet some of your listeners are familiar with the story. Uh, the uh, the Elwha River. Is a was once a historically highly pro- productive, prolific salmon uh, river system. It had all five species of salmon and steelhead, uh, and 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 I think about a half dozen other anadromous uh, fish species that move between saltwater and freshwater. Um, so highly productive. About a hundred years ago. Two dams were, in, uh, were, were constructed uh, to produce electricity. Of course, this was done the way it was often done without much consideration for uh, the rule of law and without any consideration for the uh, tribal people that lived in that area and had for thousands of years. In this case, it's the Elwha people. Um, so these dams went in yeah, uh, uh, over a century ago and, 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 and the uh, this whole productive watershed um, uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, shriveled up, and you got only a couple of miles of, of of habitat available to the salmon that use this system, and so their you know their populations they persisted, in fact, which is a really good thing, but there was you know. That they they could be counted in in the, in sort of the, the dozens or hundreds uh, in any given year as opposed to tens of thousands. Um, so those dams were uh, after a long campaign that began in the mid 70s and was led by the Elwha people in many respects. Um, those dams were successfully removed uh, in 2012, and since then. That watershed has been undergoing this this amazing transformation and restoration, um, and and there's been quite a bit of science conducted by various folks to understand um, uh, how this system is restoring itself and how it's changing since the dams came out. So there was a whole bunch of baseline research done before the dams were removed, and then over the course of a year or so, <clears throat> they were removed. And, you know, one thing that's been amazing is that these these fish, in many respects, without any assistance, uh, have been 
uh, you know, finding this habitat, it's almost like they can smell access to habitat. And, and, and so fish that haven't been seen in some cases in this system for 100 years uh, are suddenly showing up. They're strays from other systems, but the point is, is that they're figuring this out. And, you know, one of the things about salmon is their incredible uh, fecundity uh, and, and resilience if you give them the sort of habitat and the rivers they need. And that's exactly what we're seeing on the Elwha, which, which by the way, is the biggest uh, river restoration dam removal project that's ever been undertaken in the United States so far. Uh, there's some bigger ones, uh, uh, you know, uh, up ahead um, coming soon. But uh, but but right now, the Elwha uh, is, is the biggest one. And it's been a tremendous success story. And, and so getting back to circling back to your original question, um, though, having flipped it upside down, is they that these scientists have been doing research to uh, understand how this system is changing uh, and they're looking at all kinds of different markers like you know the the health of the river and sediment movement and you know coastal estuary uh, impacts because you know one of the great things about the Elwha is it these were only two dams that that were on the system that that was connected between the headwaters of the Olympic mountains of national of the national park so that's great habitat well protected all the way down to the Puget Sound, Salish Sea, uh, you know, marine environment. And, uh, you know, so I'll just start with the, the, the restoration of the fish themselves. These fish have come back uh, way faster than any of the scientists ever predicted. Uh, there's still a long ways to go. But these fish are moving up through the system that they haven't had access to for, for 100 years. And, they, they, you know, again, you give them the river, they know exactly what to do with it. So you've got Chinook coming back. You've got Sockeye coming back. You've got Steelhead coming back. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so and with it, you know, they're laying eggs, they're spawning out, they're dying. So what some scientists have been doing is, is looking at what's going on terrestrially. Um, uh, with other fish and wildlife populations to to see what kind of effect they've had. Well, um, some of the early uh, results have shown, for example, that otter uh, are coming back into the system in higher numbers than they had previously been, and that their clutch sizes, the number of young they have when they uh, you know give birth, is going up. And they're able to actually track and, and recognize marine-derived nutrients in the, uh, you know, fat and blood of these otters. They, they can, you know, sort of collect uh, some of this, in, this information w- without harming the otter. Um, but what they're noticing is, A, increased productivity, and B, they're actually seeing the marine nutrients in, these, in this population. So that's a really positive result. The other thing that I, um, the other specific study that I can think of, which uh, is uh, the the American Dipper, which is a a bird that lives in and along water systems all over the West. Yeah. Caught a couple by accident. Oh, is that right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, they, someone was doing, a scientist was doing research on the response of dippers. Well, dippers, you know, for example, will take advantage of, you know, where they see a, a nest, a, a salmon or steelhead nest, that they might eat a few of the eggs. So 
this nutrients that's coming out of the ocean and being deposited in the Elwha is feeding these dippers, and the dippers are having um, uh, uh, also a sort of interesting biological response. One is they're having instead of just one clutch in the Elwha basin in a in a uh, you know a, a clutch of eggs uh, in the sort of spring Green summer, season. they're now having two clutches, and the survival of each of those clutches is going up. And so the, you know, uh, the dipper population is on the increase. And, and, uh, and again, also here, they've done some blood draws and they, they've detected uh, nitrogen and other nutrients that have come from the ocean. There's markers that, that make it easy to detect. Um, and, and so they're, they're getting these nutrients and it's, it's obvious that they're, they're sort of benefiting from them as well. So uh, the, the sort of flip of your question is, you know, uh, where we've restored salmon and, and we've restored river access and habitat, you know, what's the response been? Well, it's been really, really good by the whole overall ecological system. And not uh, that long of a time either. Very short period of time. Yeah. It's, it's, so that's super exciting. And the fact is, I think that, that one of the things that, you know, change is always hard. It took a long time to um, uh, secure the public support and political will to re- remove these dams, restore this river. Um, but the fact is, especially in this era, um, where there's a lot of bad news coming at us from, from sort of different angles, um, the, the notion that, that we can, you know, f- you know, right some wrongs, fix some of our mistakes, uh, restore rivers and salmon and populations and, and systems. It's not just salmon that we're restoring. We're really restoring a system. And, you know, I think that as it, as, as, you know, 20 years ago, dam removal was sort of, you know, uh, marginalized as some, you know, sort of radical dream of, of environmentalists who, who, who wanted us, you know, to live in caves. Um, and of course, you know, it wasn't true then and it's not true now. But but what 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 is true is that, you know, much more of the public has come to recognize the both the value of restoring these systems, the opportunity, the economic and and ecological and cultural benefits, the benefits to often rural communities where these where these river systems exist. And um, and that's super encouraging because I think each. You know, I mean, when you when when you stop and think about it, you know, some people argue, well, geez, these 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 dams are are you know they're like the pyramids. We, we've built them, and, and 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 you know they should never come down. But of course, it, you know, in another perspective, they they're u- utilitarian tools, and they have a lifetime, just like a car or a fridge or just about any other piece of equipment that we purchase or, or make or use. And 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 the, the, the balance can also shift as to the, their costs and benefits. And in an era today where we have a heck of a lot more energy um, sources, especially alternative. ones, alternative energy sources that aren't producing carbon uh, and they have effectively a much smaller footprint on the landscape and also support jobs. Um, you know, there's a lot of alternatives. So we have opportunities here to to maintain and continue to expand our energy, our clean energy supply, while we're also looking around and figuring out, okay, um, the, the 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 ledger on on some dams, not all, uh, not all today, anyways. Uh, but the ledger on some dams has is, is gotten to the point where, you know, their, their costs exceed their benefits. And, and when that occurs, 
It's time to make a change. And that's what happened on the Elwha. The numbers in many ways, well, they didn't drive that decision, but they were essential to the overall equation. And I think, you know, we've got 75,000 dams in this country. Um, you can bet that some of them were, were based on or, or you know, either the, the, the economics have changed over time or, or they were, you know, sort of built on a faulty premise in the beginning. Um, you know, we're now in a position, I think, where people are sort of, you know, scratching their head and saying we've got this new public policy tool. We can restore rivers. We can generate greater benefits to society by restoring it, by removing these dams, restoring these rivers and investing in, you know, clean, less impactful uh, alternative sources of energy. What is the largest dam removal project you are currently involved with? So snake yeah the um the 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 Sarah wild salmon for its 25 years has largely been focused on addressing the uh harmful impacts of the overzealous uh dam building era of the last century and when we started in the early 90s in response to the endangered species act listings of snake river sockeye um the, the our focus was on making operational changes to the ways the dams and the reservoirs were run in order to create some additional space for salmon and allow the populations to survive and, and maybe uh, re- re- recover a bit. And over time, through the 90s, the science just became irrefutable that, you know, the, 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 we, we, we had sort of gone overboard. Um, on dam construction to a point where there was very little space left for these fish and that in some instances removal was going to be necessary or we were going to have to say goodbye to these you know powerful influential historic fish populations um, for and, and all the benefits that we've been talking about that they that they deliver to, to people and in, 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 in fish and wildlife and ecosystems. And, uh, and, and some of the worst offenders in the Columbia Basin are the four dams on the Lower Snake River in southwest Washington state. The Snake River is the uh, main tributary of the Columbia River, which originates in, in British Columbia flows south uh, through central Washington and then takes a sharp turn to the west and, 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 and you know, flows into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the snake originates in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. That's where its headwaters are. And it flows, it meanders a little bit uh, west and, and north uh, and eventually into southeast Washington and then uh, flows into the Columbia uh, in South Central Washington State, if that if that gives you a sort of impression of where where well the Snake River was once the most productive, uh, even though it had a relatively small geography in the overall Columbia Basin, it was one of the most productive landscapes uh, for salmon for whatever reason. I don't I don't really understand why. I don't know if scientists do, but it was highly uh, productive. It, you know, it produced like half of the spring Chinook or more uh, of the entire Columbia Basin was found upstream in the, in the Snake River Basin. Um, and the, the four lower Snake River dams, they were built in the 60s and 70s. They, that was sort of the, getting towards the end of the dam building era. 
And, you know, the various folks had sort of suggested and pushed for construction of these dams for decades before, but the Army Corps uh, had always resisted it because they, by their own admission in the middle of the last century, uh, acknowledged that they didn't pencil out. They, they, there wasn't enough head there for electrical production. We had a ton of electricity in the region already anyways. Um, they were going to cost a lot to build and maintain, and their benefits were going to be very modest. They're obsolete um, once they were built. Even before they were built, right. So what happened, though, of course, and often does happen, is you know Congress got the best of the core, and and you know the other dam sites had been built out, and the core at some point probably it, it sort of said to themselves, well, geez, you know, uh, you know, if we want to build a dam, I guess we should we should build them here. So they did they did a bunch of funny paperwork to uh, make it appear as if they would pencil out, and then they got the okay from Congress. Uh, or the approval from Congress. I mean, Congress, frankly, was pushing them to, to build these. And, and they went ahead and did it. And, and immediately afterwards, in the mid-1970s, when the four dams were completed, um, uh, the salmon populations in the Snake River, as predicted, as we knew would occur, plummeted, and they've never recovered. Completely crashed. Yep, 90% uh, loss. And we, we lost the Snake River coho in the mid-'80s. Um, and then there's a number of other populations that are holding on. Uh, sockeye, uh, Snake River sockeye, who, who find their homes in the Rocky Mountains. So they connect the Rocky Mountains uh, up at six, 7,000 feet to the Pacific Ocean. The massive uh, drainage. And, exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, the amazing thing about sockeye and also uh, the other salmon of central Idaho, these are, long, these are among the longest migrating salmon in the in in the, on the planet they're not the longest but they're among the longest they have a migration that takes the 900 miles upstream to get back to their spawning grounds but they are by a long shot the highest migrating these fish climb almost 7,000 feet in elevation to get back to their spawning grounds to to spawn out and die it's it's an astonishing uh elevation that they climb uh, and it's fantastic habitat, and it's highly prolific, and they f- they figured it out, and they've been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years until we come along and 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 impose a whole bunch of these uh, dams and reservoirs, and they've been you know struggling to 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 to, to really exist ever since. It's amazing um, how fast we can screw something up in so little time. It it is. I mean, I, I you know. Our perspectives are, are, I think, uh, you know, again, as sort of Westerners on in North America, our perspectives are very, very short, especially when you think about the perspectives in, 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 uh, of the, the, the original inhabitants of this area who think in much, much longer time frames. And, you know, in, in 100 years, we've brought this system and its benefits to, to its knees. And, you know, the, the exciting thing is, of course, is that there is, um, you know, with when it comes to restoring rivers in the Pacific Northwest, we have been an epicenter of river restoration and dam removal. Uh, it's been hard, but it's getting easier because as with each project, people realize local communities regionally, oh, we can make this transition. This actually can be better than what it was uh, if we do it right. 
And it's not that all dams uh, are bad and all dams are going to be removed. Uh, I, I, I do think it's true that all dams have a footprint and an impact. Um, but you have to sort of look at the larger context and uh, and what the alternatives are and what their costs and benefits are over time. I mean, one of the things that I, I do think is something that the Pacific Northwest is going to is is beginning to grapple with in this century and will continue to is the recognition that this big centralized energy production system that was built in the last century is it's getting older. Uh, it's aging and and it's going to its cost, you know, its initial costs post construction were relatively low. Everything was new. Um, you know, things ran for the most part pretty well. Um, but but now they're you know, these things are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, which is in many cases beyond the predicted lifetime of these of these um, uh, of these dams. Um, and and I, I think that. You know, there it, it's a difficult conversation for folks in the region, particularly if they've been sort of invested in, in participants in the construction of the system in the last century, because, you know, change is the thing that never that's it, ever present. And you know, I think that we've got a lot of change ahead. Um, and it's, you know, as, as we were saying earlier, there are a, there are you know, the energy sector. Technologies, costs, economies uh, is 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 changing so fast today um, that uh, there are a heck of a lot of additional options um, that are at low co- lower cost. And there's a transition that we're in the midst of, and it's only going to continue to accelerate. And I think it's very hard to imagine that you know that the dams are, are going to escape that transition. Because simple fact is, is that, you know, there are these big centralized built structures that over time are going to just their costs are going to make uh, maintenance and, and, and continued operations very, very challenging. Um, today, for example, um, you know, the solar in Washington, in, in California, this, the, the, the investment in solar, because prices have really come down in the last five years. Uh, has just been way beyond what expectations were. And returning to the Snake River dams in the, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the energy produced by the Snake River dams was often sent down to California to be used there uh, as a clean energy resource. It was sold on the on the open market, and it was a good source of revenue for Bonneville Power Administration that markets the power from the uh, hydro system that the the federal hydro system in the Columbia Basin. Um, today, however, California has an energy surplus in the spring, the very time when these Snake River dams uh, have you know produced the, the the vast majority of their energy because they don't store uh, water. They they own they produce when the water when the rivers flowing. That's of course in the springtime when the big snow melts happen. Mm-hmm. So the market for Snake River energy it still exists, uh, but it's greatly diminished because competition and pushing from other sources of energy that are coming online. And I think that kind of pressure and those kinds of changes are only going to further undermine the argument for keeping these highly costly dams that are getting older that we're spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars every year to try to mitigate their their harmful salmon impacts. And that's a big 
piece of the equation here on why uh, I think it's just a matter of time before the Lower Snook River dams. A decision is made that it's time to remove the Lower Snook River dams and restore that river is it's economics. It's simple economics. It's a, it's a basic cost benefit analysis of, you know, the alternatives are available. They're less costly and less impactful. Uh, and the, you know, over time, the lower Snake River dams costs are rising. They were built for two basic reasons. Uh, actually, they were originally conceived of for one reason, and that was what was going to be heavily subsidized. Uh, commercial navigation, flatwater reservoirs for barges to ship product down to the city of Portland, Port of Portland for export. Um, uh, they had to add in the electrical production in order to get it, the, the dams closer to penciling out, although it was still a struggle. And uh, in a time when there was a huge surplus of energy in the region, so there wasn't really a market for it then. Uh, there has been a market, you know, to be fair, for that energy uh, during uh, the last, uh, you know, several decades. But again, as I just said, that that market is is changing so dramatically. Uh, much bigger regional and global forces and technological forces are are I think leading the, you know, taking us to a place where the lower Snake River dams are, uh, you know, they're not quite obsolete, but 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 damn near. And they, they today they cost more. Then they, the, the cost of operations and mitigation for salmon impacts is greater than the benefits they deliver to the region. And so when, 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 uh, you know, when, when the numbers look that way, it, it becomes just a matter of time before, uh, they'll, you know, decisions get made and, and, uh, and changes are made. Do you have a special bottle of scotch or champagne you've been holding on to for the day the dams come down? Um, I, I do have a couple of uh, uh, bottles of beer. Um, I'm not sure how well they'll uh, uh, ho- hold up over time. They, Is they've it been Olympia? Si- well, it's uh, it's a it's I think it's called uh, it's a demo it's a demolition uh, it's demolition is in the title. And uh, I set those aside about 15 years ago for the for opening and the, and the time when uh, uh, the, the river is restored. And as I said, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's been a, it's it's been a long battle so far. Uh, we've been at this for um, you know over 15 years, um, but you know the Elwha was no different. And these battles are getting shorter. I, I should spend a little bit of time, Rob, talking about I think what the, the next big river restoration. Uh, in the Northwest is going to be, and that's on the Klamath River in Southern Oregon, Northern California. And, and that is a, uh, river system, uh, very similar sets of issues on the Elwha in terms of, you know, uh, energy production, uh, h- harmful tribal impacts, harmful impacts on salmon and, uh, populations. Um, it's been a battle with agricultural communities too, which is, which is, which is, you know, not part of the, uh, Elwha narrative, but it is part of the, um, in some ways, part of the Snake River uh, uh, f- uh, landscape too. Um, but uh, you know, there's been a 20-year battle waged over the future of these four uh, uh, privately owned dams on the Klamath River, which have uh, had you know terrible effects on on salmon and 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 as a result, commercial fisheries and and, and native communities. Um, well, in 2020. Uh, a, a deal has been brokered where the 
the Pacific Corps, the owner of those dams, has recognized that the value of those dams is less than their costs, and it's a good, smart business decision to remove them. And that's what they're going to do. And that's going to start in 2020. It should last, I think, as I understand it, it should all occur sort of an, within a 12 or 18 month period. So it's going to be very rapid and it's going to um, restore one of the, you know, on the West Coast, one of our, you know, sort of, you know, top five, top six uh, salmon, you know, important uh, salmon rivers uh, on the West Coast. So it's a huge opportunity. It's been a long haul. Uh, people came together and figure out a way to make it work so that uh, the, the people that have relied on that system of dams and reservoirs are being transitioned. They're being bought out. There are alternatives being created to make sure, for example, the, there are clean energy resources available to them. You know, that's an important piece of this equation is we, we've got to make some transitions, right? We've got to make some changes. Things aren't working anymore. But it's also important to recognize that, you know, there are constituencies and communities and businesses that 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 have come to rely on the the current circumstances. And it's, I think, incumbent on us uh, and the responsible thing to do to make sure that we put together a package or a plan with the various stakeholders to make that transition uh, and not create new problems, um, but, but you know, address some old ones and, and make sure that we've got a better system, a more sustainable system uh, uh, that's going to that's work as we move forward. Uh, and they did that in the Klamath. They did it in the Elwha. And, and that's the kind of work we're, we're really prioritizing uh, uh, and encouraging in, in terms of conversations with key stakeholders uh, on, on the Lower Snake as well. Well, I thank you for fighting the good fight for all of us. Well, it seems like uh, you've got your hands full. It, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, uh, and inspiring uh, uh, controversy, challenge, battle, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it, it, it gets me out of bed every morning. Um, you know, salmon are uh, sort of amazing and I find inspiring critters uh, for various reasons. They're indicators of healthy uh, ecosystems. Um, if we're doing right by salmon, we're probably doing right by the, the landscape and the rivers. Salmon are also connectors. They connect, you know, freshwater with saltwater. They connect tribal people uh, with non-tribal people. They, they connect, you know, eaters of food uh, with the, 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 the folks who, 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 you know, fish for that food. Um, they connect urban and rural. There's, you know, there's this, they are in, in, in you know, I mean, it's no accident that they are uh, viewed by many as sort of, in some ways, the heart and soul of the Pacific Northwest and its landscape. And so, um, to me, uh, you know, it's it's an it's an easy battle in some respects to get up and, and and engage in every day because the benefits, not just to salmon, but to communities, even I think to some of those communities that are resistant to making the kinds of changes we need to make sure they're here. There's opportunities that I think many people will come to come to see. Um, as like, oh, geez, this, you know, it's the Elwha has been an amazing success story. 
um, you can point to a lot of other dam removal projects where they've just been success stories. The restoration of fish, the restoration of the river have happened much more quickly than people anticipated. And and I think that, you know, this is a tremendous opportunity. This, I mean, restoring the Lower Snake River is going to be, you know, it's sort of unprecedented. It's going to be the biggest salmon and river restoration project this nation's ever undertaken. Um, uh, we've got a little more work to do. But uh, uh, but it's very exciting because I you know I I, I I you know we're we're approaching that tipping point and, uh, um, and 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 I'm looking forward to sort of entering that new phase of of figuring out the details of how to get it done. How can we help you and the listeners well, when you get up in so, the morning to fight yeah. the good fight? How can we all help? I you know there's a number of ways. Uh, um, that folks can help. First of all, you know, just getting, uh, um, you know, educated and informed about what's going on. I, I, you know, encourage you to visit, uh, you know, wildsalmon.org, www.wildsalmon.org. That's our website. Um, we've, we've also got a number of, uh, um, uh, social media, uh, accounts or handles, um, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and, you know, that's another way of sort of, you know, tracking what we're doing and getting informed. That's, and that's, that's, uh, yep. And, and we have a are great cause those, we have it tell you how you just click on it, fill something out and it sends a letter to yeah. your congressmen, representatives. Sure. We've got alerts on, on our website. There's also a, a, a way to sign up to make sure you get into our database and, and you'll hear from us periodically with updates on, on campaign progress and different activities. Um, so getting educated and as a first step and then, you know, sharing that information, encouraging other people to learn, to be active, to be, of course, contacting elected officials. Um, and, um, you know, that's that's you know, that's a that's obviously a key pivot point. Right. We've got to We've got to move the politics, I think, in the Pacific Northwest, um, uh, you know, it's an issue about politics. The, the economics are becoming increasingly clear. The science is increasingly clear. We know what we need to do to, to sort of fix things. Um, we've got to continue to move the politics. And that means, you know, the politicians and key constituencies and agencies to come together and work on a solution that works for all of us. Um, so, you know, engagement politically is always is, is a critical uh, tool that still works in this system, despite the the rather dire political landscape uh, uh, I find myself in on a, on a frequent basis these days. I think that's going to change. Uh, I look forward to that. But the other the other thing is, you know, of course, you know, there's opportunities to, to donate and support our organization with 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 you know your financial contributions uh as i said at the beginning of the show rob we're uh, a fairly mean lean uh 501c3 nonprofit organization and we depend on the support of uh, of donors large and small to help us continue to advance and pr- progress towards towards some of our our our, our big project goals um, so um, you know those are i think those are some key ways and of course you know my email uh, and cell phones available on the website and if you're listening and you want more information, I, I don't hesitate to just reach out directly. I'd, I'd look forward to uh, exchanging emails or getting on the phone and chatting further. My last question is, I, I'm assuming you've got a massive library in your office of books. 
Is there a, a book you would suggest for myself or others just to read more about the history of salmon and just kind of break down everything we've talked about today? I could name a couple of books. I got my pencil. Uh, yep. So one is a book by uh, Dr. David Montgomery called the, Fa- the King- called King of Fish, and that gives a really good overview that that, that starts back in in Europe, where there used to be healthy, robust salmon runs that were highly regarded. And there was protective laws around how we treated rivers and how we impacted those runs. They were ineffective over time, and those populations were lost. And then that that process hit the East Coast. We had Atlantic salmon on the eastern seaboard of of North America, and, and those populations have been hammered. And now we're in the Pacific Northwest where we have the most robust populations remaining outside of Alaska. Um, but we're still facing the same kinds of challenges. He does a great job of providing that historical perspective, okay. and that's a broad survey. The other one I would suggest I, I think is great, and it really focuses in on the Lower Snake River. It's called River of Life, Channel of Death, and it was uh, written by uh, a gentleman named Keith Peterson, uh, and it really focuses in on many of the issues that, that we've touched on here lightly today, about the, uh, you know, the fecundity of that river system before the dams were installed, and then the the sort of really poor economics, um, uh, you know, decision making and and uh, uh, sleight of hand that occurred to get those dams uh, uh, constructed, and then of course we know the legacy we're living with today. Finally, uh, I would point people towards our, um, we have a, on our website a sort of video library. And there's, you know, there's a number of short videos. Um, some are, you know, five, six, seven minutes long. There's a 30-minute uh, uh, video that was produced back in 1970. It's a great piece of, uh, you know, historic documentary called Struggle for the Snake. And that uh, takes a hard look at the economic controversies back in uh, the 19, 1970 uh, and the battle over whether we should be building these dams at all. Uh, and it's a classic, uh, you know, 1970s documentary um, uh, that that I, I found. Just I, I only got got uh, was made aware of it in the last year, and it's just a it's a, it's a must see. Well, I'm going to check out all of those. Any last things you wanted to talk about before we get you back to saving I, our salmon? I don't, I don't think so, Rob. We can always I think do it I just again. Want to- yeah, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and, and uh, uh, your, your, your uh, listeners' interest, and uh, let's, uh, let's stay in touch. Fantastic. Joseph, thank you so much for this. Uh, it's my pleasure. All Take right. care. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This has been a production of Freestone Media at freestone-media. Dot com.